You can turn in your Bibles to Proverbs. And as those who've been here regularly are growing accustomed to hearing me explain, I'm going to explain again that as we've been studying Proverbs, we have to take a different approach than we normally do in Scripture. Instead of going verse by verse or chapter by chapter through a book of Scripture, Proverbs sends us in a different direction because Proverbs is structured differently. And so we have to look at the themes that Proverbs teaches and go all throughout the book of Proverbs, finding where those nuggets are buried as we look at each idea. And so it's a different approach. And so this morning I'll be reading four verses from Proverbs from four different chapters. And in the sermon, we'll be looking at more than that from all across Proverbs as we see how Proverbs speaks to us wisdom for the oppressed. Hear now the word of the Lord. Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. Proverbs 29, 13. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. This is the word of the Lord. One thing that children at every age will remind you, and they do not outgrow this, I have learned, is that nothing is fair. Right? Nothing is ever fair. And as we mature, hopefully we start to realize that as a child, when we declared that things were so, so very unfair, we were really just saying, I'm not getting what I want when I want it. But we also, as we mature, start to see that we weren't entirely wrong. Because the world is very much not fair. And behind those acts of unfairness are the actions of sinful people. People who use whatever power they have, be it great or small, to mistreat, to harm, to take advantage of others in big ways and in small ways. International bullies and schoolyard bullies. Bruised bodies, bruised hearts, bruised reputations. Injustice is universal. And the biblical word that is often used to describe that is oppression. When those with power misuse that power to harm others in some way. I recognize that everyone in this room, whether you've experienced at a personal level or merely observe it going on in the world, you have been exposed to oppression and to injustice in some way. And Proverbs addresses that with clarity, with sincerity with sympathy. But as Proverbs addresses it, as we've seen each week with each topic we've looked at, it does not look at these truths as a way to salvation, but rather as a path we walk from salvation. Having received the grace of God in Christ, how now do we then live? Proverbs gives us wisdom for that. Proverbs is not saying, do these things and the Lord will then have mercy on you. It rather says, as those who have received the mercy and the grace of God, this then is how you live in light of that. This is wisdom for the way of those who are in Christ. 
It does not necessarily teach us what the gospel is. It rather teaches us what the gospel does. And for those who have received Jesus Christ, who have seen God in human flesh, taking on our sin and dying on the cross for us, this wisdom makes greater sense because things that Proverbs asks of us and even demands of us are only possible in light of what Jesus has already done for us. Through Jesus, we see God's commitment to justice. And when we see God's commitment to justice in Jesus Christ, it makes us able to trust God and to await His justice. And as we do so, to be a people who show grace. Three things that I want us to see that Proverbs tells us about justice. First is that we desire justice because we know the Lord. We desire justice because we know the Lord. Living in the corner of history and in the culture that we do, we may take the very notion of justice for granted. And I would suggest that this is because the gospel has so shaped and fashioned and directed Western culture that our very cultural understanding of justice comes from a gospel worldview. This is one of the beautiful things about discussing the issue of justice with people who do not share our faith in God. When you ask, well, where does your idea of justice come from? Why do you believe that people should be treated fairly and equally and rightly? Because that's not been the assumption of most cultures in most history. For those who know the gospel, we desire justice because we know the Lord. Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. That's Proverbs 14, 31. God's word teaches us that all people should be treated fairly and justly because all people are made in the image of God. As you treat that person, so you treat his maker. The respect you show her is the same respect that you are showing to her creator. This recurs all throughout Scripture. When we are warned not to curse our brother or sister, because in doing so, we're cursing the God in whose image they are made. When Jesus said, as much as you did this for the least of my brothers, you did it also for me. God's word teaches us that all people should be treated fairly and equally, because all people are made in the image of God. Prior to the introduction of the gospel in a culture, the standard of justice tends to be that might makes right. Justice is what the strongest person or strongest group decides is fair. And usually it's what's in their own best interest. There is no standard, no naturally occurring human standard that confers dignity, worth, and value to each person. Apart from the Word of God teaching us that weak and strong, rich and poor, popular or outcast, we are all made in the image of God, and we all stand on equal ground before Him. Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 29, 13. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both of them. The idea is that God made the poor person and the oppressor. Neither one of them is treated favorably in his sight in a way that the other is not. They are equal before him. This very notion 
as you're well familiar, is written into the founding documents of our nation. That the equality and fairness upon which everything is to be based is only self-evident to us because we believe it is given by our Creator. Apart from the light of God's Word, the worth of the weak and poor was not self-evident to anyone. It was rather a sign of judgment, a sign of worthlessness, a sign and a justification for a lack of rights. But for those who know the Lord, for those who have learned His heart and seen His, seen His goodness, justice shifts from being a power play to being something else, to an assertion of the values of the God who made all things very good and who intends to again make all things new and right. As He promises in Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 18.5 It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. God tells us what is right. God tells us how the world should be. God revealed these things to His people in His law, but He did not give only words. He gave us a living model of what justice should look like, a representation of what his heart for the oppressed would look like. In Colossians 1.19, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If we would know what God's love of justice looks like in our lives, we are given Jesus as a model, as a vivid illustration of God in action. And we see in Jesus that the poor are treated with the same dignity as the rich. The powerful is given no more regard than the powerless. The famous are respected no more than the common. Jesus shows us what God is like. And we see God's love of justice in the way that He treats people equally. But beyond that, beyond simple fairness... We see God's passion to make right what is wrong, to bring release and comfort. Just as we sang earlier this morning, He comes to break oppression and to set the captives free. When we sing that, we are quoting the prophet Isaiah. We're quoting a passage that Jesus also quoted when He began His ministry. He stepped forward and took a scroll from Isaiah and, and to reveal to the people listening what his ministry was going to be about, he unrolled the scroll to Isaiah. And in Luke 4, we see him saying it this way, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor direction of Jesus' ministry was to care for, tend for, uplift, and liberate those who were oppressed. Now, does this take us on a different path theologically than the idea that Jesus came to die for our sins? Not at all. Because the oppression and injustice that Jesus has in view is all a direct result of the sin that rules the world by ruling in the hearts of people. 
In order to bring release, true release that will last, there has to be an end of all oppression, not just of one oppressor, which means there has to be an end of sin. I've shared with you before, and I'll share it again. One of my favorite movie illustrations of this from the great, deeply profound and philosophical classic Shrek, where the hero rescues the princess, the fairy tale princess from the tower where she's being guarded by a dragon. And as they're fleeing out, she hears the dragon roaring and she says, you didn't kill the dragon. He says, it's on my to-do list. Because they both know that even if he gets her out of there, there is no liberty, there is no freedom, there is no true release unless the threat has been done away with once and for all. So for Jesus to truly release oppressors, sin has to be destroyed. The dragon has to be slain. But we must also see that the work of forgiveness and healing is not complete until Jesus, until God's original vision of a just world where people made in his image are treated with dignity. Only when that world is a reality is the ministry and work of Jesus complete. So in Christ, we see God's vision of what he's doing in the world. We love justice because because we know the Lord. We desire justice because we see his heart. We know what he's all about. And we see that vision that teaches us to love justice, to long for it, to desire it. And we see that without the most basic assumptions about humanity that we have in the gospel, there is no foundation for justice. It doesn't make sense. Proverbs reminds us in Proverbs 28, 5, evil men, they don't understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. We desire justice because we know the Lord. Proverbs also teaches us more. I think we've all been in a situation, whether it's in a restaurant or a classroom or an office building or a public space where we see a sign with clear rules that are not being followed. For me, when I lived overseas, the most common example of this was how many no smoking signs I saw in China. And how many times I saw a group of people smoking underneath the very sign that forbid that. It's one thing to have rules in place. It's enough to know that those rules will be enforced. And so Proverbs also tells us that not only do we desire and love justice because we know the Lord, but we also pursue justice because we fear the Lord. What he has said is good. What he desires will be carried out. In Proverbs eleven twenty one. be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. God speaks of oppression and justice in a way that makes very clear to us that these are not just ideals, these are not just good ideas for us to consider, these are expectations for the world and for us in it. And God's passion about this is not just empty and idle talk. God intends to fight for the oppressed an example of this in Proverbs 22, 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Do not crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 23, 10. Similarly, do not move an ancient landmark 
This is basically stealing somebody's property. Or enter the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong, and He will plead their cause against you. God stands against injustice not only in His words, but most importantly with His actions. And His actions will support the cause of the oppressed, the persecuted, the unfairly treated. This is more important to God than even religious show and display. For those who go to church and are good people and sing the right songs and spout the right doctrines and vote the right way and yet treat others unfairly and abusively and oppressively, the Lord warns in Proverbs 21 to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Those who would bring their sacrifice to the temple in the Old Testament and yet turn around and treat others unfairly God says, I don't even look at your sacrifice. It's an offense to me that you would even do that while failing to live the way that I have called you to live, while failing to treat those made in my image with the same love and dignity that I demand. But we need to pause here and be careful in our thinking because many have taken this, this truth, this biblical truth about God's heart for justice and his siding with the oppressed and have made an unbalanced theology out of it. Speaking and acting as God is uncritically on the side of the poor because of the fact that they're poor. Or that God opposes the powerful because they're powerful. And that is the opposite of justice. It is not oppressors alone who fear or should fear the justice of God. It is not the rich alone that stand condemned before Him. Proverbs seventeen thirteen warns us that if anyone, anyone, returns evil for good. Evil will not depart from his house. God's action against sin does not only take aim at corporate greed, social evil, national and international justice and injustice. God looks at and weighs each heart and finds in each person that they fall short of his glorious standard. As we were reminded this morning, as we confessed our sin and read the law together from Romans 12, we were reminded that sin is not just out there. Sin isn't here. It's not just others that we need to measure by the standard of God's law. It's me. And the danger of being passionate about correcting the sins of our nation and of our neighbors is that we fail to notice the sin in our own hearts, the injustice in how we treat others, failing to love, Failing to forgive. Failing to treat each person as if made in the image of God. That is why Christ went to the cross. Not for the systemic ills that harm our society, but for the personal guilt that corrupts each individual. It is for those sins that Jesus gives up His life. And so our pursuit of justice has to begin with the fear of the Lord, that He not only punishes injustice out there, but He punishes the sin in here. There is no deliverance from oppression without repentance. So as 1 Peter 2 tells us, He Himself, Jesus that is, bore our sins in His body on the tree. On the cross, Jesus was treated as your sins deserve. The justice of God is acted out in the death of Jesus for you. And when He does this, God shows us how serious He is 
about justice. God shows us how serious he is about justice by sending Jesus to die as a punishment for our sins. The cross shows us the love of God. Yes, absolutely it does. But never forget that the cross also shows us the wrath of God and how strongly he acts against sin. Meditate on that. Would you consider that? Consider and think about what the death of Jesus means. About every sin and injustice in the world. What will God do to it? He shows us on the cross what he will do to every sin and every injustice in the world. So for those who oppress others, for those who abuse and those who harm, the cross is a warning that God will punish. For those hurting under the sins of others, those oppressed and mistreated, the cross is a promise that God will act. And so the cross is both a warning and a promise that God will bring every sin to an end. Which brings up a third important lesson about justice that I want us to see in Proverbs today. A lesson that only makes sense when in light of the cross. We await justice. We await justice because we trust the Lord. Proverbs has nice, friendly commands about how to respond to injustice and fairness. For example, Proverbs 24, verse 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. That's simple enough, right? Don't seek revenge. Don't pay people back when they do wrong. Okay, but how about this one? Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Not only are we told to withhold revenge, we're told to actively love and bless our oppressors, to seek what is good and kind and needful for them, to show mercy and even kindness. That feels like Christianity becomes a religion of pushovers. It seems like we don't really care about whether or not justice is done in the end, but that's far from the case. What Proverbs is teaching and in doing so, it agrees with all of Scripture. Is that we recognize we don't need to be responsible for ultimate justice. Sidebar, the word ultimate is key here. Scripture clearly expects us to act justly in all we do. To support legal systems and governments that act justly, that punish what is wrong, and commend what is right. Scripture doesn't say that... You know, the murderer should get off scot-free because we forgive them. That's not a scriptural view. It's not what it means to turn the other cheek. But when earthly justice fails, and when we are personally sinned against and wronged, revenge is not the path that the gospel lays before us. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. We await justice because we trust the Lord. The gospel doesn't just tell us to wait and see how things work out. 
wait because karma might come around and, and bite them in the end. The gospel doesn't just tell us to withhold our angry hand. It also tells us why we can do so. In Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler. Many look to their leaders saying, hey, can you bring justice here? Can you make justice happen? But it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Ultimate justice is in the hands of the Lord. He is merciful, yes. He is patient and he does not always punish us or our enemies as quickly as we deserve. And that is the kindness of God. But here from Romans 2, how the kindness of God is to be understood. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What Scripture is saying there and warning there is that those who are not immediately punished for the wrong that they do should not scoff at God's patience, should not belittle it and think that because He is patient and merciful that He is therefore weak. Scripture says, no, what's happening there is God is making a deposit in His wrath jar. And every time that you sin, every time that you act unjustly, another coin goes in the wrath jar and is stored up. And at some point, if you are unrepentant and do not turn from your ways, that jar is opened up and poured out on you and the wrath of God is poured out on those who do not repent. However, the gospel tells us that for those who repent and turn to Christ, the jar doesn't just sit there forever. The jar is still open and the wrath of God is still filled to the brim and is still poured out, but no longer on the sinner. It is poured out on Jesus on the cross. One way or the other, injustice will be punished. So when God does not immediately punish, it is kindness. It is not weakness. Remember the cross. God punishes our sins on the cross and any sin that is not carried to the cross by Jesus is carried by the sinner to the day of judgment. God is patient but that does not make him unjust. Every sin will be punished forever. And either Jesus suffers and takes that punishment in our place, or we suffer the punishment ourselves. Every unfair and every hurtful thing will be punished by God, either on the cross of Jesus or in the fires of hell. We looked at Romans 12 in our assurance, our confession of sin earlier. We, these words are written there. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that leaves us in a place where we are free to exercise grace. A position where we can look to those who do evil and see in them a remnant of the image of God. An image that may yet still be someday restored at the cross. And for that reason alone, we can be patient and gracious. But should they persist in evil until the end, we need not fear that they will escape justice. And for that reason as well, we can withhold vengeance. God is patient. 
God delays justice because he desires repentance. And in light of his mercy to us, his patience towards us, a patience that did lead us to salvation, we should extend that same undeserved grace and patience to those who do wrong. Not forsaking justice, not giving up on the idea of justice, but giving every room for mercy to work until justice is delivered by the Lord. In any case, our focus needs to be drawn back to the cross. Because on the cross, we see the justice and the mercy of God. The cross shows us that every sin is judged. We saw that, but it also shows us the grace of God that Jesus takes that wrath on himself for sinners. A punishment he did not deserve. So that those who once lived unjustly might be made new. So in order for us to show the grace of God to people who hurt us, we need to see both the justice and the grace of God at work on the cross of Jesus. Every oppressor, everyone who hurts others, everyone who acts unjustly and does wrong, encounters the reality of the cross in one of those two ways, either as a sign of their coming judgment or as a conduit of their saving grace. So believer, people of God, when he who forgave his executioners while being killed, when he commands you to love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you, he is not calling on you to look inward and find some moral courage on your own to deny that sin is wrong and to ignore the hurt that's being done and instead put on a happy face. He is calling you to look to the cross and to see there the justice of God that is guaranteed and the grace of God that triumphs over judgment. Just to wrap up, I was doing some thinking on the topic of injustice this week, obviously. And I was realizing what a fascinating thing it is to study the rise of dictators in history. When Germany was feeling crushed and oppressed after the treaties of World War I, a young Adolf Hitler spoke passionately, promising justice for them, promising to make right what was wrong. When a nation of neglected and hungry farmers was being oppressed by colonizing nations and their own power-hungry leaders, a young Mao Zedong stood up and spoke of justice and inspired the people of China and took command. In Imperial Russia, in Colonial Africa, in Cold War Cuba, nation after nation, people after people, feeling oppressed, mistreated, and unheard, they look for justice. They lift their eyes up and give ear to anyone who will promise them that they will make all things right. They lift their eyes to anyone who promises them a solution. Proverbs 29, 26, you've heard it twice already, hear it a third time. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. We are hungry for justice. And that makes us vulnerable to people who will promise that, but who can never deliver what only comes from the Lord. People of God, we cannot know justice apart from the Lord. 
We lift our eyes to rulers. We lift our eyes to political parties, to social movements, to politicians, to leaders, to laws, to anything that promises to fix what we all see and know is broken in the world. But as we are about to sing, there is only one source of help when we are hungry for justice and relief from oppression. Only one who has demonstrated his justice in Jesus Christ, not only justice, but also his commitment to lovingly spare and rescue his children. For the oppressed, look to the cross and see. Not only does God understand your hurt, but he has promised to heal it. He will, he will, he will punish what is wrong, either on the cross or on the day of judgment. And he will bring true and irreversible justice to his kingdom. For all his children in it. Let us lift our eyes to the hills where our help comes from and rejoice in that promise. Pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we lift our eyes to you who alone show us what justice is, why we should work for it, and how it is that we can wait for it. Would you speak to our hungry hearts today? May your words settle in, giving us peace where we are conflicted, giving us patience where we are impatient, giving us comfort where we are frustrated, making us gracious where we desire revenge. And for those who may have heard this word this morning and stand outside of your church, stand outside of the cross, for those who, whether they claim your name or not, continue to mistreat and abuse and oppress. We pray that the power of the cross would break through sinful hearts and bring to repentance, lest they be lost on the day of judgment when your justice does not fail. And now we lift up our eyes to you, to the one whose mercy and justice does not end. In the name of Christ we pray.